So what we don't want to do is turn people like a refrigerator when we're when we're when we're trying to reestablish movement. Good morning. Happy Monday. I have neural coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right. This is going to be a busy week. The intense 14 uh, starts this week. It's actually on Thursday. So I'm looking forward to that. So let's dig right into today's Q&A. Um, this is with uh, Charlie. Charlie's fairly new. I saw him sneaking in on one of the coffee and coaches conference calls last week. Um, so he's had a few exposures and he's figuring some stuff out on his own, which is great. But he asked some really good foundational questions in, in this Q&A that I think a lot of people are going to benefit from. We touched on foundational archetypes. We touched on right oblique orientation, um, dirty measures on the table. So we talked a little bit about that, about how these things can change using the table as your constraint and, and point of reference. So very important call, probably for a lot of people. Um, I think you'll benefit. If you'd like to participate in a 15-minute consultation, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com. Put 15-minute consultation in the subject line, and please include your question in the email, and we will arrange that at our mutual convenience. Everybody have an outstanding Monday. Happy Intensive Week, and I'll see you tomorrow. All right, Charlie. Uh, we got the video rolling. Clock has started. What is your question? Um, so, um, Bill, I don't know if you have that chessboard that I emailed through. I do. I do. And I'll put it up here on the video for everybody to see. Okay. okay. Um, I was wondering if I could just go through what my interpretations was and you could maybe guide me and see if I was on the right track. Yeah. Let's go. Yeah. Um, so it's just starting off, got a wide infrasternal angle. So it's on with a exhaled axial skeleton and bias with, um, uh, reductions in flexion, abduction, and ER across the across the limbs. Um, so, see in the pelvis, we've got a restriction in internal rotation as well. Um, yep. Think, understand the common compensation we have is a concentric concentric orientation of the um, posterior lower um, musculature at the at the pelvis. Um, uh, that's how I understand that. Um, so that would actually limit that. That's going to limit the early flexion measures. Okay. That's, mm -hmm. um, that it's, it's actually representative uh, of a, um, the, the posterior lower compression limits, limits the ER and the flexion in front of you. Okay. So okay. It, moves, it moves external rotation from in front of you out to the side. That's what that's what that posterior lower represents. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. Okay. So you're getting more ER space and you're using up the it's IR space there. that you have. It's out there. It's like, it's actually less ER space. So, so you don't have any ER space in front of you. It's moved out to the side. So it's moved away from midline. That's what you okay. want, to, want to understand about that. It's the anterior compressive strategy that's going to limit the internal rotation. Okay, so, so what it's showing you is that you've got a tremendous amount of, of A to P. So when you get that posterior lower compressive strategy, the thing that happened just prior to that is the anterior compressive strategy, okay? That's why we talk about these, these things in, in a little bit of a sequence because it allows us to see how these superficial strategies are layered upon um, the, the uh, axial skeleton, okay? Mm -hmm. 
So mm-hmm. don't misrepresent what, what they're showing you. Okay. Yep. When you yep. have post, so when you have posterior lower compressive strategy, okay, you, you lose early traditional hip flexion. If we, if we want to call it that you're going to lose, um, uh, the straight leg raise is going to be limited. And then you're going to lose IR, not because of the posterior compressive strategy, but because of what just happened prior to that, which would be the anterior compression. Okay. Just okay. so you understand. Okay. There's a sequence of events that those things represent, but it tells us where you are in space. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the important thing. Okay. Okay. So um, is that an extra s- step between the, um, the inhalation bias um, strategy that comes with the exhalation bias on the, from it's the not extra, it's just, it's just part of the, the, the sequential layering of superficial strategies on top of the axial skeleton. Okay. There's, okay. there's a, a, there's a typical representation of the archetypes. Okay. And I think you understand that what you have to understand is that, is that the superficial strategies are going to appear in a, in a relative specific sequence of events based on where your center of gravity is over your feet. Okay. When you see posterior lower compression, so your early flexion measures, if you look at the chessboard, the early flexion measures are very limited. So your hip flexion is limited. Your straight leg raise is limited. So right away you go, uh Oh, we got a posterior lower compressive strategy. If you have a posterior lower compressive strategy, you have all the other superficial strategies in play already because the last one to get layered on is posterior lower. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so that's what I want you to understand about this. Okay. Your, your, your assumption. So in, in your email, your assumption that, that, um, this chessboard represents a right oblique representation is correct. So this is this is somebody that's tipping on a much more oblique axis as they are turning. Okay, and your and that would be represented by your ER measures. Okay, mm-hmm. so so when you see the deficit of ER on the right side greater than the left side, you can make the assumption that you're on the right oblique. When you see the limitation of straight leg raise and early hip flexion, that means you're pushed forward. Okay. okay. So that tipped on the right oblique first. Okay. Mm-hmm. Tipped on the right oblique first and then got pushed farther forward. So the center of gravity is way over to the right and way forward. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, is that, that oblique axis shifts something that, um, that comes really early in the progression for, for a wide ISA? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Um, so one thing that I've been struggling to understand is the increase of ER at the, um, at the shoulder. Um, is that, um, from just my research this afternoon, just going through videos, um, I got a clue that could have been, uh, the, anterior compressive strategy pulling the sternum down which okay, could... that would, so that would that would be a restriction of internal rotation of the shoulder if yep. the sternum is pushed down do this for me put your arm up in like a like a a 90 degree angle there there you go perfect now don't change the shoulder orientation just bend backwards did your hand go back too um yeah yeah does it, so does that make it look like there's more external rotation? 
Yep. Yep. Okay. Was it more external rotation in the shoulder? Not relative. No. No, that is correct. Okay. Yeah. So so when you see a magnification, so so your 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 ERs match. Yeah. Okay. In your shoulder and your hip, which means that that you should know already before you even measure somebody. It's like, I know that, that unless there's a constraint problem, like if, if you tore a labrum or something like that, then that, that changes the rules a little bit because the constraints have changed. But when you're measuring somebody, if you, if you measure an ER, you should have a, this, a similar limitation in ER in the ipsilateral extremity. Okay. But, but it looks like you don't, it looks like, wow, we've got a lot, especially on the one side, it looks like, wow, we've got a lot of ER, don't we? But the reality is, is that if you're anteriorly oriented and I lay you on a table, so the table becomes a constraint. So if you lay on the table and then you roll backwards on the table, as many people do, okay, you don't see the restriction of ER in the table measure, right? But the magnification tells us that chances are you fell backwards on the table. Mm -hmm. Assume, mm -hmm. Like I said, assuming all the constraints are intact. Yep. Okay. Because you do have situations where you'll have like this one outlier measure, like everything matches. And then you see this like crazy kind of like an external rotation that'll show up like the cricket bowlers, baseball pitchers and stuff like that. They have a lot of rollback on the table. Like they, they all roll back on the table, which gives them a truly magnified ER representation. They get twists and bones that magnify the ER. So there's a lot of stuff that you kind of need to know under those circumstances, but typically Typically what you're looking at here is you're looking at a layback on the table. The layback is actually more in this situation on the, uh, uh, you're going to see more of the right-sided, correct? We saw more on the right. Yeah. We saw more on the right than we did on the, on the left because when, when you're laying on the table, the left side of your body is probably not touching the table. Okay. Relative to the right side. Yep. Yep. So you're kind of, you're kind of measuring like this. Uh-huh. Okay. Get it? Yeah, I do. Yeah. I do. Yeah. So it's, um, sneaky. it's sneaky, but, but if you, if you understand, if you understand what the possibilities are, then it helps yep. you figure out your chess boards. Right. Okay. Yeah. As I say, all measurements are dirty, which means that the whole body, the whole body is represented in each of your measures. So let me give you another, for instance. So when you look at, um, when you look at the shoulder internal rotation measure um, on the left side, right? Which you got a pretty decent measure there compared to what your left hip was representing, right? So the left hip IR is only like five and you get 60 IR in the, in the shoulder and you go, what the heck's going on there? Mm -hmm. Well, if you're laying on the table and you're twisted this way, guess what? My neck is turning this way, right? My lower cervical yep. spine is going this way. That's going to magnify your internal rotation measurement of your shoulder because you're mm -hmm. not measuring just shoulder motion. You're measuring internal rotation, mm -hmm. right? And, and so if that spine's turning away, that magnifies your internal rotation. Measurement. Okay. So again, that's, how, that's how you identify these things. And it's a, um, the, the hip is an easier, um, it's more of a true representation because it's harder to cheat. What's heavier? Yeah. So always remember that you're measuring in reference to the table. It's like, like the arm really doesn't weigh as much as the leg does. And so yeah. the chance, the chance, if, so if you had like a, 
like a, a big gigantic arm on one side and a normal size arm on the other side, right? Chances mm-hmm. are, if you tried to internally rotate it uh, um, with a big giant arm, it wouldn't have turned the spine nearly as much. And so you would have a measurement that would be more representative of a limitation. So again, it's like what's moving as you perform these measures. When you bring the, the, the leg up over the hip, and that pushes the hip into the table, you'll get a truer representation of the limitation of internal rotation. The arm being lighter, everything just kind of turns with it. That's how you yeah. got to discern these things, mm-hmm. right? Okay, whenever you're measuring a limb, you're measuring the entire body moving. If the question mark is, is how much does the hip move? How much does the one side of the pelvis move? How much does the spine move as you're performing these measures? That's how we, that's how we figure this stuff out. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? I think so. Um, so with the um, weight shifted forward anteriorly, yes, um, is that um, representative in in a anterior pelvic orientation? Is that well? You 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 have an anterior orientation for sure, based on your on your measures, mm-hmm. right? So your, your, your hippie R measures give you that, that piece of information. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you know that you're forward, the, the lack of IR, the limited straight leg raise, again, that's, that's a push forward. So you're mm-hmm. moving towards a, a later representation of propulsion. So you're, so you're farther forward. You're, you're trying to get past middle, trying to get into a late representation there. That's what mm-hmm. this. Okay. So the first, first step would be to, to bring that back the um yes sir yeah always always if if you take somebody if you take somebody that's on a on an oblique uh, like an on an oblique turn okay and then pushed forward if you try to turn them back to the left all you do is turn everything at the same time because you, you don't have relative movement available to you so you try to push and like i said it, it i always i always talk about you ever you ever move a refrigerator out of a corner. I can imagine. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. You're not old enough to own your own refrigerator. Is that what you're <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when you move, re- so back in the olden days before you were born, refrigerators didn't have wheels. They were they were just on legs, and so you you, you have to move one side at a time, kind of a thing, right? And so what we don't want to do is turn people like a refrigerator when we're when we're when we're trying to reestablish movement. So, so you need to bring them back so you can recapture some of the relative motions that are, that should be available in the pelvis itself. So now we want relative motion in the pelvis. Then we have actually the capacity to make a turn until then you don't, you're just, and, I, and I'll know that when I have the ERs, um, normalized. Yeah, so, so, so think about the, think about the ones, all the, all the measures that are representative of that, of that push forward need to improve, right? So the straight leg raise should improve. The straight leg raise should improve. Early hip flexion should improve. IR should improve. ER should improve. Okay. Yeah. That's how you know. That's how you know. Okay. All right. We are unfortunately out of time, my friend, but this is great. Actually, so your question is going to help a lot of people because I I think they're, they're really good representation of how these things get layered on. So, so thank you very much for your question. Thanks, Bill. Thanks. Have a great day. Good morning. Happy Tuesday. I have neural coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right. Coming off the long weekend. Um, Got to dig right in to today's Q&A. <clears throat> um, this actually came out of a discussion that we had yesterday 
on the uh, IFAS University call and we started talking about carries and how each variation of a carry can emphasize a different aspect of propulsion if it is executed um, correctly. So we've got a lot of versatility in, in our carries um, we could use these in a rehab situation where we're reintroducing force production in somebody and we don't want to lose ranges of motion, but we want to teach them how to manage the internal pressures. Um, carries are a great way to, to reintroduce that. If we talk about jumping and change of direction activities in an athlete, we can use it there as well. Again, because of the, the pressure management that's, that's required under those circumstances, we can increase endurance at high force production. So this would be more like an element where we would be more associated with like strongman type activities. Um, and then we can uh, emphasize the recapturing of range of motion via the shape change that's associated with the load distribution of the carries. And that's kind of what I want to emphasize today. So, <clears throat> excuse me. So load matters in, in this situation because the amount of force production is going to be determined by the by the loads used. So greater force production equals greater compression. And so the, the question mark then becomes is, are we trying to preserve or recapture ranges of motion? Or are we merely concerned um, with, with force production? Simple test. How hard is it for you to breathe as you're executing these activities? The greater the difficulty with breathing, the greater the compression. Therefore, you're moving closer and closer to a, a middle to, to max force production. Um, if we start to see compensatory strategies, so you start to see shoulders dropping or, or elevating in, in compensation for the load. Now you know you're, you're drifting into situations where you're using internal rotation compensatory strategies just to manage the load. So you get to decide whether that is, that is something that you're, you're concerned with. Finally, you can look at um, monitoring your, your key performance indicators. So for instance, um, the chances of losing external rotation is greater at the higher loads or higher force productions. And so you have to decide whether whether that's something that, that you're willing to uh, compromise on. And so again, monitoring those. So if I had a, a baseball pitcher, for instance, that, that is very reliant on, on having access to external rotation, if I use too much force production in, in a carry, I may be compromising that external rotation. Um, again, load distribution influences the, the shape change. And so that's what we're talking about when we're talking about emphasizing different aspects uh, of propulsion. So if I'm writing a program and let's just say that my emphasis is on recapturing early propulsion capabilities and I'm doing carries that do not support early propulsion, then I've actually created interference for myself. So if I'm do doing too much force or I'm doing a carry that emphasizes middle when I'm trying to capture early, again, I have a conflict in my program. Now, I've talked about suitcase carries um, in, in the past. And so we're talking about the influence of a contralateral load here. But the thing I want you to, to recognize is that we've got the load outside of the base of support when we're talking about, about a suitcase carry. And so what, what we're doing is we're sticking that extremity that's carrying the load into middle propulsion, which means that we're going to increase the duration of the internal rotation moment on the, the opposite lower extremity. So we're increasing the duration of internal rotation. Um, and if we, if we view this from, from the top, we can actually see the center of gravity shifting over on the opposing side. So this is actually a carry um, with, with the, the right arm that you're, that you're looking at. If I take this load and I move it up into the rack position, so, so this would be you know, the kettlebell uh, being, being in a rack position. Um, we're gonna emphasize a, a shift of the center of gravity 
as well as an expansion to compensate for the distribution of load. So now I'm going to see the expansion moving posteriorly on the carry, the carry side. So what we have now is a delay. So we're moving from an E-yard to an I-yard Super, a superimposed I-yard position because the load is actually inside of the base of support and then the anterior. And so again, we're moving from ER to IR. So this is actually an emphasis on early propulsion. So if, I, if I'm biasing my programming towards early propulsion, I'm gonna emphasize a rack carry. The other alternative that we have for a unilateral carry would be a waiter's carry. So this is gonna be an overhead carry. Now, what we've done here as we move the center of gravity upward and it's still inside the base of support. So we're actually starting from a more IR representation moving towards ER. So what the waiter's carry provides us is an advantage of emphasizing a later propulsive strategy. So, so we, have, we have each phase of propulsion and we have a unilateral carry that provides us an, a, an emphasis of shape change and load to help us remain coherent um, with our programming. So, Again, if we're, if we're writing programs, and let's just say we have a, a left foot jumper with low force production, what we might consider then is the right suitcase carry because we're gonna train more of a middle propulsive representation. This allows them to acquire the, the concentric orientation of, of the pelvic outlet that they're gonna need to produce force during a jump. I could use the exact same exercise with a different loading strategy for a pelvic floor patient that's having difficulty capturing concentric orientation of the pelvic outlet. So again, it's just a matter of looking at this from the perspective of what muscle orientation do I need, what representation of, of internal to, to external rotation am I looking at, and then just choosing the appropriate area of emphasis in, in the activity. So I can't emphasize enough the versatility of using, using loaded carries. It's just a matter of understanding the representations of which propulsive phase you're trying to emphasize, and then manipulating loads and other parameters to remain coherent with your programming. If you would like to participate in a 15-minute consultation, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com, put 15-minute consultation in the subject line so I don't delete it, and we'll arrange that at our mutual convenience. Everybody have an outstanding Tuesday, and I will see you tomorrow. Good morning, happy Wednesday. I have no coffee in hand, and it is perfect. All right. Today is Wednesday. That means that tomorrow is Thursday. That means 6 a.m. tomorrow morning, Coffee and Coaches Conference Call. As usual, a great group of people, great Q&A. We go a couple of hours, always a good time. So if you haven't joined us before, please join us at 6 a.m. The link will be on my professional Facebook page just prior to the call. Okay, uh, today's Q&A. had a couple questions that came out on some cable exercises. And so just kind of decided to pick one. So we're gonna look at a little bit of a high-low cable press um, that is an, a nice exercise because it is um, modifiable to your goals in, in many situations. And in this situation, we're gonna talk about working from middle propulsion. So we have situations where we might need to slow someone's tibia down as they move through uh, middle propulsions. We have somebody that, that has an arch that, that drops very, very quickly. So they're going towards the end of middle propulsion very quickly, or they're trying to produce maximum force in the ground too soon. Um, and we might need to slow them down. So in that case, we can use a high-low cable press to actually reduce the, the rate at which the tibia is translating forward. So in this case, we're gonna use some, some foot cues very specifically. So we're gonna keep pressure 
on the uh, the lead foot first metatarsal head, and we're going to drive pressure posteriorly towards the posterior foot heel and in that case we're actually creating a delay in how fast that tibia is going to be able to translate forward now we also want to tweak the direction that we're applying force through the cable so this is going to be what we would consider um, parallel to the direction of our stance we have we have our feet pointing straight ahead and we're going to we're gonna aim that cable and press the cable straight forward under these circumstances. And in doing so, because of the position of the center of gravity towards the posterior heel, we're gonna actually slow the tibia down under those circumstances. We're also gonna create a delay strategy throughout the, the right side of the axial skeleton, also beneficial to prevent us from translating too quickly over the foot. Now, Second circumstance, same exercise, we're just gonna tweak it a little bit. Now we've got a situation where we might have somebody that's in an earlier representation through the foot and we wanna teach them to translate the tibia forward. So now we gotta teach somebody to, to move the arch downward a little bit more effectively. So we're gonna take this high-low cable press and we're gonna tweak our, our, our foot cues just a little bit. So now I'm gonna put pressure through the first metatarsal head and push it towards the lead heel. Under these circumstances, that's going to allow the tibia to translate more quickly over the foot, and we're gonna see that arch go down and we'll get people translating much more quickly towards a middle to, to max propulsion. Now, tweaking the direction of the cable press itself, now we're gonna go a little bit cross-body. So what we wanna do is we just orient somebody on an oblique just a little bit relative to the cable. So as you press down and forward, you're gonna end up aiming for the inside of that lead foot under these circumstances. So again, we're gonna push that sacral base forward and that's gonna allow us to square it to the, to the front and allow us to get through that middle P just a little bit quicker. So again, I love these, these exercises because they're so versatile. We talked about you know, the versatility of, of uh, carries yesterday. Um, this is just another one of those activities that, that's really, really useful when we're trying to create changes, especially through this middle propulsive uh, phase. And um, I think you'll find it beneficial as well. But just don't, don't forget, pay attention to your foot cues, especially uh, to allow you to control the position of the center of gravity so you can actually create the delay or the advancement forward. Um, if you would like to participate in a 15-minute Q&A with yours truly, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com, put 15-minute consultation in the subject line, and we will arrange that at our mutual convenience. I will see you all tomorrow morning, 6 a.m., Coffee and Coaches Conference call. Have a great day. Uh, recruitment, synchronization, ray coding, intra, intermuscular coordination, etc. All of those things contribute to force output. Uh, I was I was listening to your explanation of uh, concentric and eccentric versus yielding and overcoming. Yes, and I was I was thinking about the the contrast sets that you would usually do when you would do like high load. I don't know, like a squat, high-loaded squat, and then uh -huh. into like a plyometric activity or <laughs> just like jumping. So yeah. it's just basically uh, like biasing the muscle tissue to a concentric bias and then just trying to hold the concentric bias while the connective tissues will yield to explode, all right.
All right. So that that was basically my my only question. Yeah. So so you, so so think about this. It's sort of there's a couple of there's there's a couple of influences here. So you're you're number one. So think about all all the concepts that are taught in strength training as to how to increase the force output. So you got recruitment, rate coding, synchronization. You know, do you understand what I'm talking about? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, if anybody's ever read Science and Practice of Strength, is it Science and Practice of Strength Training? Is it um, Satsuyorsky's book? Science and Practice. Is it, is it Science and Practice of Strength Training? Somebody help me out here. Is, it, is that what it, okay. It's been a while since I've picked it up, but anyway, it's probably one of the better books that, that explains a lot of this, this stuff. Um, but so, so, okay, so we got, like I said, uh, recruitment, synchronization, ray coding, intra, intermuscular coordination, et cetera. All of those things contribute to force output, right? So I do something that is a high force activity that promotes all of those elements. So I get more muscle fibers, more motor units to recruit at one time, right? I bias it towards a concentric orientation. There, that that it assures me the force production, but then I still have to train the connective tissue element, which is a rate dependent behavior. So you basically wanna, after you have that force production, you wanna make your, your elastic band thicker? Well, I'm what I'm what I'm trying to do. What I'm trying to do is is get that that connective tissue to behave appropriately for the con the context, right? So, if I was a power lifter that doesn't have a time constraint on it, I want very very stiff connective tissues that don't deform easily. All right. right? If I'm trying to be fast, I need I need the the storage and release of that energy to be very very quick. So you want to yield just enough and not too much. So to too much yield, too much yield increases the amount of time between the expansion of the tissue and the compression of the tissue. So now I'm slow, right? Which is what I might not want, right? I get too much dampening, right? Okay, yeah. right? And so then I'm trying to optimize optimize a behavior within a time constraint. So, so you have to understand how much time you have available. So we go to Lalo's question, okay? High level sprinter, ground contact, right? 0.11 seconds. Yeah. That's not a lot of time for storage and release, but it does happen, right? So yeah. if, I, yeah. if I have, if I, so think about it, if I took a sprinter, and I teach them to yield too much. It would just get slower. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But see, this also determines like what type of, of activities you're going to choose because the time constraint will matter. The behavior, like how stiff do I need to tune, tune the connective tissues? So again, I'll give uh, Austin Ulrich the, the credit for, for coming up with that term and concept. Um, where I need that connective tissue to be just like appropriately stiff and appropriately elastic to get the, the right behavior based on the amount of time that I have available. If I was training a high jumper, okay, 
the ground contact is a little bit longer than a sprinter. So I might choose a little bit different activities. If I was training a basketball player compared to the sprinter, I would have more time on the ground to produce force, wouldn't I? You see, yeah, yeah. So, so then it starts, it starts to help you select which activities are going to be more appropriate, right? Whereas a sprinter, I have to bump, 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 bump across the ground. Basketball player is like, bump, 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 you see? So, so again, it's like, but, but you, you can combine these activities, you know, like you'll see all sorts of different contrasts applied within the workout. But you can you can separate them out into phases depending on again depending on the individual depending on their responses. Right? All right. So there's a lot of ways to organize it, but but understanding the principle is what what's most important. All right. All right. Makes sense. Yeah. Perfect. Thank you. Good morning. Happy Friday. I have NeuroCoffee in hand and. It is perfect. So obviously we're in the purple room today. I needed the help from Alfred here. We're gonna talk about what it takes to acquire the rack position in the front squat. I got a question from Derek who's having some trouble. He's not sure what strategies to use to help him improve his, his front rack for the front squat. So we're gonna talk about how we get there, what it's actually gonna take, what some of the limitations are, and then some demonstrations of some activities that are gonna help you improve your capability to achieve the rack position in the front squat. One of the things that we have to appreciate about getting into this, this front rack position for a front squat is that we have to move the shoulder through an excursion of range of motion to even acquire this position. So if you recall, this lower part of, of traditional shoulder flexion is actually an external rotation bias. And then we have to bias ourselves towards internal rotation. So if I have a limitation in either position, I'm going to have a, a limitation on my ability to acquire my front rack position in the front squat or a power clean. If I have a posterior lower compression on the back side of this rib cage, it's going to limit my ability to acquire my external rotation bias as I start to elevate my arm. What it's going to do, it's going to move me towards an internal, internal rotation bias too soon because the scapula is going to start to move. It's going to start to compress against the back side of the rib cage. And then by the time I try to get into my internal rotation bias, I've already exhausted all my internal rotation. So now it's almost impossible for me to comfortably acquire the rack position in the front squat. If I do have posterior expansion and I can get through this external rotation bias without difficulty, but I don't have an up pump handle capability or an expansion in the anterior upper rib cage, I'll never have enough internal rotation in the shoulder to acquire the rack position in the front squat comfortably. So those folks that think that external rotation is the limitation in holding the front rack position are only partially correct because it's the early limitation of external rotation that is a limiting factor. But it could be an internal rotation problem or an external rotation problem that ultimately limits my ability to acquire and utilize the front rack position comfortably. If you lack the up pump handle in the front, meaning you don't have enough internal rotation, what you're gonna probably see is you're gonna to start to see the elbow deviate laterally. And so this is somewhat trying to reacquire some external rotation so you have more internal rotation available to you to actually acquire and utilize the rack position. So the inability to keep the upper back expanded not only restricts my ability to hold my position, but it's also gonna make it very difficult to increase the load of my front squat. 
So now when we think about activities that we want to utilize to reinforce our ability to expand in the appropriate areas to acquire the rack position, we want to think about, okay, what expands the posterior lower? What can give me the up pump handle? What can give me that yielding strategy in the upper back? So there's a lot of activities that actually reinforce all of these aspects of this expansion all at the same time. So this is where bear crawls really come into play. Because of the orientation of the body, I'm going to emphasize that lower posterior expansion of the rib cage. I'll immediately get the yielding strategy in the upper back. And because of the shoulder girdle position as I'm going through the propulsive phase of quadruped, I'm also going to create the up pump handle position. Plate squats are a great way to reinforce this early propulsive strategy that we're going to utilize in the front squat as well. The heels elevated position puts the ankle on the early propulsive phase. It's going to create a posterior expansion in the pelvis as well as that posterior expansion in the upper back. If we need to do something that's a little bit more rehabish or we're having trouble acquiring the position to begin with, we want to do something that's a little bit simpler. So we're going to start in maybe a child's pose, which is actually the bottom position of the front squat. We'll move into an inverted position, which is going to invert our airflow and allow us to increase our ability to expand through the upper thorax. We're going to bring that pump handle up and expand the, the posterior upper back. To challenge us a little bit more then, we're going to bring you back to upright and we're going to do something like a backward sled drag, which is also going to place the foot in an early propulsive strategy and teach us to expand the upper back against some resistance. So there's a lot of activities that we, we can utilize rather than trying to rely on some ineffective form of stretching, which might give you some, some sort of temporary impact in your ability to acquire the rack position. But ultimately, you have to reteach yourself to expand in the appropriate areas to move the shoulder through its full excursion to get to the rack position. Now, worst case scenarios, we still have to train. So what are you going to be your substitutions? So right away, we elevate the heels, we get posterior expansion, so maybe that's going to be sufficient for you to acquire a better rack position and a more effective front squat. If you can't acquire the position for the shoulder, a really common substitution is to take some lifting straps, wrap them around the bar, and that's going to allow you to at least get the, the shoulder into a, a position where we can actually support the bar across the shoulders. But keep in mind, I still need to get that anterior posterior expansion in the thorax so I have a place to rest that weight. So the expansion of the thorax provides us the, the shelf that we're going to ultimately use to hold the rack position. Derek, hopefully that gives you some strategies and some ideas that you can utilize to improve your own front squat. If you have any questions, send them to askbillhartman at gmail.com. I will see you guys next week. That force that is produced has to be accounted for because number one, it allows you to do amazing things like walk on two legs, throw a baseball at 95 miles an hour, jump really, really high. Good morning, happy Tuesday. I have neural coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right, man, busy, crazy Tuesday, um, intense 13 week. So we gotta kinda cut to the chase. So here's the good news. Um, I did the Upside Strength podcast a while back um, with Sean Seal, and the whole thing is finally uh, posted up on YouTube and on their, their uh, podcasting channel. And so, again, thank you, Sean, for your, your interest in what I do. But uh, this will give everybody a chance to see the whole thing. Um, so the links are um, here. If you're watching this on Instagram, um, they are in my bio. You can go to the bio, click on the link, 
and it will take you to the YouTube or to the uh, podcast channel. So uh, please take advantage of that. Um, if you would like to participate in a live Q&A, um, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com, and we will arrange that at our mutual convenience. Don't forget to put 15-minute consultation in the subject line so I don't delete it. So I'm going to cut away. We're going to do about five minutes of this uh, podcast that I did with Sean. This is in regards to internal uh, dynamics. So gut movement is actually a pretty major influencer as far as how we move. So we can actually take advantage of these forces. It's one of those things that allows us to do cool things like walking on two legs that, that uh, no other animal really does as well as we do. And then it's also can be detrimental in regards to some of the things that we see during um, really high force, high speed movement. Um, so again, this is a little bit of intro to that. The, the discussion is much larger on the podcast, so please go there and watch the whole thing. Have an outstanding Tuesday, and I'll see you tomorrow. Um, going back to your, your statement about anatomy and dead guy anatomy and, and its limitations, what is your, if you had to give a primer for people that haven't been exposed to, to your model, um, what is your current understanding of internal dynamics when it comes to, to movement? Well, you mean the fact that it's been underappreciated? Yes, this. And then for people who've never maybe heard about the concept of internal dynamics, what, what it actually is. Well, okay. So, so you're, you're a big bag of water. Let, let's just make it really, really simple. Okay. You're a big bag of water. And if you've ever like, so they, they actually, we actually have these as tools in the gym now where we have the, the big water bags and stuff. Mm -hmm. Like all you gotta do is swing one of those big water bags around. It's like that's happening inside of you all the time, and so so that that force that is produced has to be accounted for because number one, it allows you to do amazing things like walk on two legs, throw a baseball ninety five miles an hour, jump really really high, like those those internal dynamics contribute to our ability to perform. They are also detrimental to performance. And so if we can understand a little bit more about, about how those internal forces interact with our ability to manage them in, in an environment that is based on gravity and space and, and, and the external forces that we have to manage, if we can understand that we have stuff going on the inside, stuff going on the outside, it provides us a better um, uh, representation of reality, again, we can't see it, but we can get close to it, right? And it allows us to make better decisions in regards to our interaction. So when we, it'll get us away from the things that, that just appear to be entirely superficial. And so when you see somebody, like we, we would have like a, say a volleyball player doing a box jump, they jump off a box and they, and they land and there's a certain way that they land. And so some people will go, oh, she has weak this. Right when we see something happen, when you see somebody's knees moving down and inward as they land a jump, they say, "Oh, she has a weak something." And it's like, well, um, actually, when you hit the ground like that, um, your guts come second. Your body falls first. Your guts follow, right? Because they float, right? And 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 so when you hit, there's another hit that, that's coming. And if you don't manage that, you have to be able to capture that force as well. So it's. So where people use these, these strong versus weak representations, if we can understand that, oh, we have management of internal forces that, again, are beneficial or detrimental, depending on our perspective and depending on what, what we're observing in context, if we can learn how to manage those more effectively, again, our decision-making process is much more accurate and then much more useful.
And so when talking about those internal dynamics and, and forces that we have to manage, what are the primary strategies that we as coaches and maybe therapists for, for you and others uh, have access to in order to, to try and um, influence what's going on at that level? Well, it doesn't change the tools that we use. It doesn't change the activities that we use. What it changes is the perspective that allows you to make a better decision under the circumstance. So the things that we have always seen, um, for instance, if I have a, a young athlete that's, that's working on some form of agility, like, a, like a, an outside foot cut or something to that effect, and I see them plant, and instead of moving into and out of the cut on essentially the same angle, I see them move into the cut, and then I see their center of gravity go up, okay? So if you ever watch a wave crash against the rocks on a, on a rocky shore, you see the water hit the rock and it goes up, okay? Well, guess what? If you're a big bag of water, you got water inside of you that moves just like that wave, slams into the side of your body, and it hits the constraint, and it goes up. So instead of being able to take that force and reorganize it and turn it in the other direction to our advantage, now we have a situation where we have somebody that's not managing the force the way we would want to. And so now we have to make a decision as to how that happens. So rather than picking on someone saying, oh, you just have a weak something, we have to say, okay, why is he unable to manage this big wave that's crashing into the rocks? And why is it going up? Instead of him learning how to capture it, use it in his turn and to reorganize and, and, and make the change in the other direction. So again, it, it just helps us select the best intervention under the circumstance by understanding that why, why do we have this observation in the first place?